One summer, many years ago, a friend and I were having lunch together in New York City. And I was on my way to the restaurant to join him. I was walking down the sidewalk along Fifth Avenue near 34th Street when I was stopped by a trio of French tourists. Where is the Empire State Building? They asked me. And I just was struck speechless for a moment, actually in amusement at the particular question, because it was all I could do from laughing at the ignorance of it. I just pointed skyward. Look up. You're standing right in front of it. I can't help but wonder if that wasn't exactly the kind of emotion that Herod had when the wise men arrived in front of him and asked, where is the one who's been born king of the Jews? Something in the man must have wanted to say, look up, you're standing right in front of him. King of the Jews was, after all, the title that Caesar Augustus himself had given to Herod at his coronation, and everything about Herod loved that particular position. And that was somewhat ironic, if you really know the backstory, because Herod wasn't even actually a Jew himself. Ironically, his father, a man by the name of Antipater, had been an Idumean, which means he had been a descendant of the Jew-hating people who lived in the land of Edom southeast of the Dead Sea. But dad had done some very well-chosen favors for the uh, government at Rome, and he had been rewarded with this opportunity to rule over this tiny province uh, of Judea. And at first, that responsibility must have seemed to Herod like being made monarch of Guam. Not a particularly exciting, not the most thrilling throne a person could ever have in the world, but being king of any place seemed pretty much better than almost any other job as far as Herod was concerned. And so he resolved he was going to make the most of the role. Serving that particular ambition were two particular attributes of character that Herod would use to parlay a minor kingship into the most infamous or one of the most infamous governments of all time. For one thing, Herod had an absolutely extraordinary ability to fake devotion. He could fake devotion like few other people. Though there is nothing in the public record to suggest that he actually gave a wit about the fortunes of Caesar, a a shrewd political savvy ran in Herod's family line, and Herod refined this to an art. Under his leadership, tax revenues to the empire rose like the market capitalization of Apple. It was an extraordinary run that uh, Rome enjoyed under the leadership of Herod in Judea. 
While gaining a reputation as one of the Roman market's most loyal performers, the king quietly managed to skim off a lot of the profits for himself, uh, 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 acquiring a very tidy sum of off-the-book resources which he used to lavish upon himself a fairly extraordinary kind of lifestyle. And as a reward for the productivity that they were experiencing from Herod, the Roman Senate gave Herod an army, which he then used to expand his district east into the Jordan area and north into Syria and into Lebanon. And the big stick of this Roman fighting force quickly became a very useful instrument that would advance Herod's second attribute of of character uh, in a particular way. That is his ruthless commitment to killing off any threats to his throne. He could fake devotion like few others, and he was ruthlessly committed to killing off threats to his throne. Now, arising to power, Herod had married uh, what's called a Hasmonean princess. That is to say, he had married somebody who was a descendant of one of the Maccabean Jews who years earlier had successfully thrown off the rule of Greece and established an independent Hebrew state. And Herod calculated that that was a risk factor in his life too. It was possible that her family would one day throw off his rule and try and establish a separate state. So faking devotion to his wife's family, Herod lulled the Hasmoneans into this false sense of self-confidence, and then he proceeded to slaughter every single one of them. His entire wife's family uh, just brutally slaughtered. When Herod became concerned by the influence of his high priest, a man by the name of Aristobulus, he, he, who was the brother of one of his ten wives, Herod axed him, and then he murdered the related wife. Suspecting that one of his two sons, uh, he had two older sons, suspecting that, that, they, that one of them might have designs on his throne, Herod decided it would be best to just kill both of them, which he did. And in one of his last acts of infamy, Herod ordered from his deathbed the imprisonment of all of the leading citizens of the city of Jerusalem. Why did he do that? Because he was concerned that upon his death, there might not be enough weeping in the streets. And so he gave the order that when he died, all the leading citizens were to be butchered so that there would be weeping in the streets of Jerusalem. Are you getting this picture? Now, I don't know, but I would not be wanting to stand next to Herod in one of the presidential debates, right? I would not want to be on the wrong side of this kind of a guy. Do you see also how Herod's two attributes, these major attributes of character, come together in the story of Christmas, in the true story of Christmas? Um, The travelers from the east earnestly ask, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? And Herod's gears immediately start to turn. First, he fakes devotion. 
He fakes devotion to the subject of their desire. Go and search carefully for the child, he says. And as soon as you find him, come tell me, so that I too may go and worship him. And then when the Magi fail to report back to him, Herod shows his second attribute of character, his commitment to killing off all threats to his throne. And the passage immediately after today's lesson records, and I quote, Matthew 2, verse 16, when Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious. And he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and in its vicinity who were two years old and under in accordance with with the time that he had learned from the Magi. Because there was no length to which Herod was not willing to go in service to the king. In service to the king. Now, as you can see very readily here, I think, Herod stands in that long line of megalomaniacal genocidal tyrants that we have seen too much of in history, uh, that we see continuing to exert their influence even in our times. These are people for whom pride and greed and anger routinely burn out of control, taking up the lives of many others around them. It is easy to hate Herod, and we should hate Herod. I think we should hate what is evil, and this guy is evil. It is tempting, I think, to write him off as somebody whose story we probably shouldn't read too frequently around Christmas time because it ruins the sweetness of the season. But there I would say, no, no, we shouldn't do that because his story is so essential to getting one of the crucial dimensions of the import of Christmas for us. You see, while Herod stands as an archetype of the kind of evil that we're trying to do away with in this world, his depravity in a far more subtle form can insinuate itself into your life and my life if we're not careful. And that's really what I want to think about with you today. I want to think about why Herod is a reminder of why we also so desperately still need a Savior ourselves. After all, and this is the true story, I think, we can sometimes fake devotion to Christ too. Uh, we can also simulate a devotion to Christ as well. How many times have we mouthed the statement, you and I, about Christ being our Lord, the Lord of our life, and then felt surprisingly little obligation when the pressure was on to actually go and do what Jesus says about treating our enemies in his radically different way, about caring for the poor in the way that he repeatedly commands, in handling money or handling time in the way that Jesus suggests. How often have we shown up at a service of worship? It got us brownie points, we reckoned. We showed up at a service of worship, but we then poured far too little of ourselves into the prayers, into the praise of God. We let the folks up front do a lot of that for us, maybe, but we just weren't all in ourselves. Sometimes we fake our devotion 
I don't mean that we are, are, are fakers in the fullest sense. There's a reason why we're here. There's something of us that wants and believes and leans into what it is that we do here. But when it comes to that utter commitment that the word devotion implies, um, there's just something that falls short. We fall. We call out to God. We, we, we cry out his name when we're, when we're in trouble. Uh, and, and, and then we struggle sometimes to live uh, for the honor of his name uh, when times are easy, when the clouds have passed by. Or we'll wear a cross around our neck. Uh, maybe we'll even have one up on the wall in, in our home. But we're going to struggle when that push comes to shove to bear a real cost, cross when it becomes highly costly to follow the way of Jesus in, in, in a world that values comfort and uh, security and certainty and the like. We'll, we'll talk sometimes about how badly Christian moral values are needed in our culture and our time, and they are desperately needed in our society and world at this time, but we'll sometimes sacrifice very little to actually, actually keep that witness going or actually step out into the public square ourselves and be that voice of witness. We'll think somebody else will do that. Somebody else will take care of that. Uh, and if I'm honest with myself, uh, and, I, and I try to be, I know that I am very concerned with appearing devoted to Jesus. Uh, I am very concerned about that, but I'm not always so sure that I want to be, to be utterly devoted to Jesus because the problem is I just like being the king. Uh, and kings and queens don't like to have their way of life dictated to them. They, they, they don't like to have their opinions seriously challenged. I'm not particularly happy, happy for example, about the way this sermon is going right now. <laughs> you know, I can see the direction this thing is moving, and there's something discomforting about this for me because I like being the king. And um, people who sit on thrones, they, they, they don't like somebody who tries to rearrange their priorities. They do not appreciate people who come in and try and suggest different plans. They like to be in control of these things themselves. And that's why many of us who like the crown have devised these ways of killing off threats to our throne. I don't mean in a literal sense. I don't think we're, I'm in, a, in the company of homicidal or genocidal people. We don't do this the way that Herod or al-Baghdadi of ISIS might, of course. We've found far more genteel, much more socially acceptable ways of retaining our power. Sometimes we just assassinate the reputations of people that disagree. Maybe not to their face, but we will speak with others about how desperately wrong that person was that disturbed our place on the throne. We will uh, silence the sound of their voice in one way or another. Or sometimes God will try and speak to us through a family member or through a, a friend or maybe through an associate at, at work. Somebody is trying to tell us something we need to hear that's very hard for us to hear and we'll say, ah, it's just their issues. Or, you know, I can name a lot of things wrong with that person too. And we just shut out the message entirely. 
we close it off. Sometimes the preacher or some uh, verse from the Scripture speaks a word that we don't like, and we probably rationalize that it, it must be meant for that other person. It's for that person next to me, across the room perhaps. Or we think, I, you know, I never really liked that pastor much anyway. Or, or I don't really trust that part of the Bible. That's not really the Word of God to me. But oftentimes the, the true story, the true story is this. We enjoy being king. We just like it. We, we're not particularly interested in hearing from the one who really is king when he says to us in one way or another, surrender your program. Surrender your possessions. Surrender your plans and your priorities to mine. Because I am Lord. I am the king. Many years ago, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the great German pastor and theologian, died at the hands of Herod or one of the Herods, because Bonhoeffer was among the few who could not bear what the Fuhrer, which literally means the supreme leader, was saying about himself. He couldn't bear it in light of the fact that there was a supreme leader, and it was not uh, Hitler. Earlier, Bonhoeffer had written, Our hearts have room only for one all-embracing devotion, and we can cleave to one Lord. And that is why the most important question of our lives, uh, maybe the most important question of Christmas, is the one that gets posed by the wise men, by the magi. And the question is this, where is the king? Where is the king? If we look in the mirror and we answer... Why you're standing right in front of him or of her. Then we lose everything. We lose everything if that's our answer. We may gain the whole world. We may expand our little uh, empires for a season, but we've lost everything that really counts in this universe. We've settled for a life that's predicated on our little power instead of God's magnificent authority and power. We are stuck on a toilet disguised as a throne, progressively circling further and further down the bowl, crying out, crying out, how can I get my way? How can I get more of my way? How can I get my way? God's vision for our lives, as you know, is that we get up and get off that particular seat. God's vision for our lives is that we get stirred to get up and go out in service of a much greater kind of kingdom and a much more amazing kind of God. And we're to respond again and again and again, you and me and everybody we know, to these really crucial questions. What truth do you want me to hear today, O King? What truth do you want me to hear so that your renovation of my life can go further? further still. And what good desire of your kingdom, Lord? What good desire of your kingdom can you use me today and in days to come to bring about? In the end, there are two courses open to us. 
I want to suggest Jesus said there are different kinds of roads in life. There's a wide and well-traveled way, and then there's a narrow way. There are two courses in life. We can sit in the seat of Herod. We can fake our devotion while secretly working to destroy whatever or whoever threatens our seat on the throne. Many people never, ever in this life get off that throne or alternatively, we can go the way of the wise man in the Christmas story. We can further our devotion and we can crucify in ourselves whatever opposes Christ's place on the throne. These are the two routes that we must select between. And if you're willing to go home by that second route, maybe you're already on that road. Many of you are already on that second route. Now let me just suggest in closing two practices, two practical ways that you can keep pursuing that goal. First, like the Magi before you, pursue the long journey of discipleship. Pursue the long journey of discipleship. Sometimes we get settled into this idea that we've taken a few steps and now God's mainly done with us. We've accepted Christ as Lord and Savior. We've started to, to we've made church a part of our lives. Uh, we're, we're involved in some volunteerism. We're involved in some generosity. But, but then we sort of get set that, that this far along is enough. When God is calling us to utter devotion, he wants us to go further in our discipleship journey. So resolve, this next year, you're going to take practical steps to grow further in your knowledge of God. You're going to read his word. You're going to you know, check out more resources that describe his attributes. You're going to go deeper with your theology than, than, than you can even get in a 30-minute shot here on a Sunday morning. You're going to go further in your discipleship. You're going to, you're going to grow more in Christ-like character than maybe you've grown in all the years before that. You're going to follow after wherever the star of the Holy Spirit leads you in his service. Decide that you're going further out on the long journey of discipleship in this next year. Go the full distance toward Christian maturity, and you will not be sorry that you committed yourself to that path. Finally, offer the king a gift that is worthy of who he is. Make a sacrifice worthy of who the king is. Give Christ the gold that you would normally hoard. Um, give him some of that so that it can advance his kingdom. Dan, advance his kingdom. I'm not just preaching, I'm feeling this with you, so that it advances his kingdom rather than our own. Offer up a grudge that you've been holding on to. Uh, offer up a sinful habit that you've been hiding. Uh, offer up a demand that you've been making of somebody else. Offer up a, a painful uh, memory that you've been nursing uh, burn like frankincense before him these things that you've been holding on to uh, and be done with them. Just be done with them today. And then pour out some myrrh, um, the third gift of the wise men. 
pour out an oil of blessing to some child of God who needs it. Uh, Pour out the words of forgiveness or of encouragement or of love or of kindness or of faith or of hope or of challenge that someone needs to hear. Pour it out the way Jesus did, the way all through his life, even to the cross, he kept pouring out the oil of blessing because these are the ways that wise men and wise women bow down and worship the king. This is how you open the clenched fist of, of personal control and, and you extend the open hand of surrender to the one who truly is king. This is how we do these things. And here's a little secret to keep in mind as you consider these uh, encouragements to you. You don't really lose anything when you give God his rightful place upon the throne. You don't really lose when you give God his rightful place in your life. In fact, you gain everything. You gain everything. You, you gain the wonderful peace of knowing he is in command. You gain the marvelous peace of feeling his power flowing through your life to this world that he so loves. And I want to close with the way Henry Nouwen put it so beautifully. Christmas is saying yes to something beyond all emotions and feelings. Christmas is saying yes to a hope that is based on God's initiative, which has nothing to do with what I think or I feel. Christmas is believing that the salvation of the world is God's work and not mine, for into this broken world a child is born who is called Son of the Most High, Prince of Peace, Savior and Lord. And this is the true story. You and I are better off in service to that king. To that king. Please pray with me. God, there are days when your word comes to us so joyfully. And there are days when your word comes to us painfully. (laughs) I think this was one of those latter days. Um, Help us to discard what was truly irrelevant to us and help us to really receive that which was meant for us. Because we know that your passion always, as you have shown us in the person of your Son, is to lead us into life that is truly life, a life abundant and eternal. So have your way with us, Lord, that as we go on our way, we might truly, fully, wonderfully, joyfully live in service to the King, the true King. Amen.